Good morning and happy Father's Day. Uh, you're gonna, I'm sure you're going to hear that more than once today, but uh, uh, my, I, I kind of forgot that Father's Day was coming. And yesterday evening, my wife came back from the grandson's birthday party with uh, some excellent vittles for my supper because she, she had to work today over at uh, Labor and Delivery there at Providence. So she came home with some ribeyes and some potatoes to bake and some stuff. And so... Uh, she did that for Father's Day yesterday evening, and uh, and uh, of course I was appreciative. But uh, of course we, as children of God, acknowledge that every day is Father's Day for us. Um, you know, uh, uh, this is the third uh, meeting of this class, our third session, and and for both of the first two classes, uh, we briefly mentioned duty. Uh, I mentioned that in the, the first session two weeks ago where I talked about uh, 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 military duty and uh, and kind of trying to make a connection with uh, with uh, us and our, our Christian family. The parallels are, are very similar. Uh, and, of course, that, you know, I think that way because that's my background. I, I was a kid, quite literally 18 years old when I joined the military and was in there for for a long time, it's hard for me to believe I've been out for 18 years now. I'm not going to ask you how long you've been out, James. It's a lot longer than I've been out. So he retired a long time before, before me. So long time, right? <laughs> um, but you know, uh, I, I had the the privilege and the honor. It was a, a tremendous blessing for me. The last eight years in the military, I served as an academic instructor at the school we called the NCO Academy. And uh, my students, I usually had 15 students in the class. We sat in a big circle, kind of like knights at a round table, so we'd all be on the, uh, on the level with each other, you know. And, um, uh, and at times, I would leave the podium and sit down in that circle with them. And one of those times was to discuss the concept of duty with them, because a third of our curriculum in that six-week in-residence course that they attended, uh, a third of our curriculum was the profession of arms. And, and we would usually start that with a discussion on duty. And even though Reg- Air Force Regulation 6-5 was in effect, I had six stripes, my students had five, uh, I would sit down at a table and join them in that circle uh, and have a discussion about the concept of duty. And by and large, uh, overwhelmingly, when I would ask them about their concept of duty, and bear in mind, these were tech sergeants. They had already been in the Air Force for uh, between 10 and 15 years and had experienced a lot, had sacrificed a lot. Uh, some of them had uh, uh, had experienced uh, the breakup of their family over all of their, their military obligations, taking them away from their family, and, and suffered conditions, working conditions in places throughout the world that, that are unimaginable to many of us, even unimaginable to me, because I haven't experienced those conditions. That's part of my blessing. <laughs> uh, but overwhelmingly, when I would ask them about the concept of duty, I would hear three things, God, country, and family. God was always first, country and family, they would kind of debate sometimes the order, the order of those two, what comes first, your country or your family? And so that's an interesting debate to, to moderate. Uh, but, but not just God, country and family, but love of God, love of their country, love of their family. 
And so our military members who serve and risk their lives to protect our freedoms and our way of life, those freedoms include freedom of religion, freedom to assemble like we do in this country that maybe we take for granted sometimes. Uh, So these folks will acknowledge the fact that while it is a privilege to serve their country, us, that's who, that's who you're serving, right? It is impossible for them to think about that privilege without simultaneously thinking about their duty. And I said that uh, there's a parallel. Uh, I read somewhere that uh, it said, fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of man. Uh, Ecclesiastes 12 and 13 and following there. Likewise, when we read our Bibles with care, when we read it carefully, we discover that all of our Christian duties, if we understand them properly, are nothing other than privileges. All of our Christian duties are privileges. See the parallel? And for us, these are great sources of obligation and motivation. If you look up duty in the dictionary, uh, you see the Cambridge and the Webster's and these places where... uh, uh, you know, there are a lot of definitions, but, but primarily it talks about obligations and expectations. And today's Father's Day, we think about our obligations to God and His expectations for us. And as fathers, we think about, uh, how our children have a duty to us from the very early ages. Uh, there are obligations and there are certainly expectations. And these are great sources of motivation for us. So we begin to learn this concept very early in our walk as our Bible class teachers taught us to be good helpers. Go home and help your mama, right? That's what they teach you when you're very, very small in a Bible class. That's the first thing you want to understand. Because it pleases God. And then we tell them to obey their parents out of love. And then we put on the full armor of God and we sing, I'm in the Lord's army. Do we not? These teachers labor long and hard. They're doing that right now down the hall. They labor long and hard so that we might understand that the privilege of being a faithful child of God carries with it certain demands of duty. And the Bible is full of this emphasis. So very briefly, to kick us off today, we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 13. I'm going to start with verse 15 there. And I like this passage in Hebrews 13 because in these verses... Uh, it talks about our duty to God. It talks about our duty to the sheep of the flock. And it talks about our duty to the shepherds of the flock. In verse 15, he says, Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So what is that sacrifice of praise to God? Um you know, he's not talking about goat or sheeps there uh, because uh, animal sacrifice is obsolete by the time this is written. So, you know, to understand this better, you go over to uh, Romans chapter 12 and verse 1 and 2 where it says, Offer your body as a living sacrifice to God. So, we're the sacrifice. You are the sacrifice following in the example of Christ. 
And it says there that we're the sacrifice, and it also says that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. That's what we're doing here in class today. That's what the kids are doing down the hall. Uh, when the Bible tells you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, it's talking about being transformed by the Word of God. That's the transformation that occurs in you. Not just something that you find out there or something you come up with on your own, right? Being transformed by the renewing of our mind involves being transferred by the word, transformed by the word of God. And of course, remember that takes us back to Hebrews 5 that we talked about the last two weeks, where it says that uh, we learn to discern good and evil by use, by using the word of God, the very oracles of God. It says by reason of use there. The oracle of God, the, the word of righteousness. So we have a duty to God. We have a duty to the flock, to our fellow Christians. And you could even take verse 16 here where it says, But do not forget to do good and to share, but with such sacrifices God is well pleased. Do not forget to do good. Do not forget to do good and to share for with such sacrifice, God is well pleased. Here again, they're talking about sacrifice, just like they did in the previous verse in the form of doing good and sharing. Uh, and I've heard this verse used more than once uh, in the focus uh, before the offering and before the Lord's Supper. Um, do good and share, and that this should be a sacrifice uh, in that. So... Uh, in 1 John 3 and 18, we're told, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and 17 through 19, I always have to do that little song in my head to find the... 1 Timothy 6 and 17 through 19, it says, command those who are rich, that would be us, by the way, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good. There it is again. Let them do good that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. Uh, this is why we participate in the collection for the saints that the Bible calls it there in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 on the first day of each week. Storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. So there's a direct connection between these expectations and these obligations, our duty, and that we may lay hold on eternal life, which I know is important to all of us. And then finally, uh, in the next verse there, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, it says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls. As those who must give account, let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. Um, so the word that's used for shepherd sometimes here in the New Testament is the same word that's used for watchman. Uh, like, go read Ezekiel 33. Uh, read, read the whole thing. And read, read 34 also, but read 33 where it talks about the watchman there and those responsibilities. So uh, in the Septuagint, you'll find the, the same word used uh, in both of those cases. So... Uh, these guys are up on the city walls watching for threats from without and for trouble from within. Problems that may occur from within. 
And also read, uh, if you want to know where the authority for that comes, read uh, the, the entire first chapter of Titus. Take your highlighter or just underline every reference there uh, to the Word of God. From, from verse 1 all the way to the end of Titus chapter 1 and a little bit into chapter 2, underline every reference to the Word of God and you see the authority for the shepherds watching over the flock from those threats from without and problems from within. In 1 Peter chapter 5, we see shepherds watch as men who will give an account. Uh, this is leadership that is taken seriously and exercised humbly because it is their duty to God. Shepherds are not accountable to the flock. They are accountable for the flock. They are accountable to God, from what I understand. If it were the other way around, if the shepherds were accountable to me, then I would be the shepherd, you see. So shepherds are accountable for the flock. They are accountable to God. All right. Because here in Hebrews thirteen seventeen it says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls, and those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for us. Happy Father's Day. Will you pray with me? Our most gracious and loving Father in heaven, uh, we... We lack the words that are sufficient to express our gratitude and our thanks. So we do our best because we are so thankful, Father, for all of the wonderful blessings that you provide us in our lives. The physical blessings and mostly for the spiritual blessings. We're thankful for your word as a guide, as a light unto our path that will Lead us to you through Christ Jesus. And help us, Father, to study your word intently today and apply these things to our lives, the lives that we would seek to please you in everything that we do. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so um, just to kind of uh, summarize some of the things we talked about uh, in Obadiah last week. So we, we started off with the first th- verse there and we saw that the decree had gone forth to the nations, the vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom, that they had heard a report from the Lord and an envoy had been sent among the nations saying, Arise and let us go against her in battle. And then in verse 5 and 6, we talked about the destruction that would be complete and Edom uh, would be betrayed by her allies in verse 7 and then verse 8 through 9. Uh, we see that not even wisdom or might can save them because God at that point was against them. Uh, their destruction was inevitable. And so we get down, when we got down to verses 10 through 16, we see that uh, Edom is being judged for her violence and unbrotherly conduct toward Jacob. Uh, there in 10 and 11, and then in 12 through 14, uh, we kind of focused on that for, for a little extra time where it was an abuke against, a rebuke against their conduct. In 12 through 14, we see, but you should not have gazed on the day of your brother and the day of his captivity 
nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped, nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. And then following this in verse 15 and 16, uh, we see that the day of the Lord for them would mean receiving the same sort of treatment that uh, that they had uh, done to Jacob. And so uh, in verse 17 through 21, we, re- we read about Israel being exalted over and above Edom. Verse 17 says, But on Mount Zion there shall be deliverance and there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them and no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau for the Lord has spoken. Okay. And so... um, Deliverance and holiness would be found on Mount Zion, uh, not Mount Seir. Uh, that's S-E-I-R. So I did that thing where you look up, you type in the word, and you put pronunciation, and it shows you a little recording, and, and they were pronouncing it Seir. So it's easier for me to say Seir, right? So Mount Seir, uh, the prominent mountain in Edom with its beautiful orange and red glow, uh, but that deliverance and holiness would be on Mount Zion. We'll talk about that a little more in just a minute, the fulfillment of the prophecy. So the tabernacle was the temple, and it sat on Zion. And God sat enthroned in the most holy place within that holy place. It was he and not the people who made Zion superior to Mount Seir. And the church comes from the Greek word ekklesia, the called out uh, assembly. And God still sits on his throne in the new Jerusalem on Mount Zion. And we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 12. And Hebrews in chapter 12 and uh, verse 22 through 24 where it says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, to God the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. And, of course, uh, when I say that uh, God still sits on his throne in New Jerusalem, um, you know that song we sing, uh, O Zion, lovely Zion, I long thy gates to see. And then we repeat that, and then we say, uh, When shall I dwell in thee? Right? So that's the Zion that we're talking about. Uh, we come to him. He is not on any high places, but on Zion. And God attracts the saved like an ice cream truck attracts children. We assemble. Uh, and he talks about that in Hebrews chapter 10. So it talks about here how the house of Jacob will consume the house of Esau. In verse, uh, continuing on in verse 17 and then through verse 18. Um, understanding 
for, for us to understand that uh, Judah's people were not any better than Edom's people. Uh, it was the fact that Jehovah sat on Zion, uh, not Seir. Uh, that's why our strength is our submission to the Lord today. He is our Lord and we will overcome if we, but if we ignore his lordship, we will fall. And this was the message of all the prophets. Uh, rewards for obedience and punishment for disobedience uh, that we get from, uh, from that we're going to talk about when we study all of the prophets. Uh, that was a, a big part of their message. So um, in 19 and 20, we see that the children of Israel will possess Edom and the surrounding nations. Uh, and that's, that was a prophecy of Obadiah in verse 19 through 20. Uh, and then in verse 21, the ultimate rule will be that of the Lord's, that God rules. Uh, there in verse 21 where it says, the sa- Then saviors shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Okay, so let's talk uh, about the fulfillment of the prophecy. Edom's destruction began with the Babylonian invasion under Nebuchadnezzar. We mentioned that and talked about that some last week. That was around 600 B.C., it continued into the 4th century B.C. with the invasion of the Arabs, known as the Nabataeans, forcing them to a region south of Judah. We talked about that on a map down there just south of uh, the Dead Sea. In the 2nd century B.C., the Maccabees brought them under subjection when Judas Maccabees slew 20,000 of them. And then a fellow named John Hyrcanus in uh uh, somewhere between 134 and 104 B.C. forced the remnant to accept circumcision and the law. Um, so its ultimate fulfillment of the prophecy of Obadiah um, may likely have been with the coming of the Messiah, of Jesus. For with his coming and the establishment of the spiritual kingdom, uh, the church, beginning in Jerusalem, uh, and this, this takes us back to one of Tony's lessons, uh, I think it was about six, maybe eight weeks ago, uh, when Tony, uh, maybe it was an evening lesson on Sunday, and Tony talked about, uh, you need to read, uh, Isaiah chapter two and verse two and three there where it foretells the things that happened that you read about in Luke 24 and then ultimately the, the whole second chapter of Acts. In Acts chapter two, so so read those things and review that from that lesson, uh, Isaiah chapter two, verse two and three, Luke twenty four, and uh, right there read like verse forty six to forty nine, and then the entire chapter of Acts. And this is the kind of thing making these connections, like those three passages, that really make studying the prophets and prophecy really exciting. When you see the fulfillment of those things happening like eight hundred years apart. It's just, it's amazing. Um, so the prophecy of uh, Balaam in Numbers 24 and 15 through 19, we'll look at that real quick. Number, numbers 24 and 15 through 19. So he took up his oracle and said, The utterance of Balaam the son of Beor, and the utterance of the man whose eyes are opened... The utterance of him who hears the words of God and has the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel, 
and batter and bro, brow of Moab, and destroy all the sons of Tumult, and Edom shall be a possession. Seir also, his enemies shall be a possession, while Israel does valiantly. Out of Jacob, one shall have dominion and destroy the remains of the city. Uh, and of course there in verse 19, out of Jacob, one shall have dominion. The one is capitalized uh, in that reference. So, uh, so we consider that prophecy as support uh, because it foretold a star that would come out of Jacob. The scepter, uh, scepter would rise out of Israel and how Edom would become a possession. Uh, the application by James at the council in Jerusalem in, in Acts chapter 15, uh, who understood the conversion of the Gentiles to be a fulfillment of a prophecy in Amos uh, chapter 9, and therefore the fulfillment is figurative, not literal, as Gentiles become Christians. See, So, uh, you know, we, we look back on these groups that, that, were, uh, that faced destruction by God and were scattered abroad and all over the world, and so... It's interesting to think about this far forward, uh, after all those things that happened and those people had been dispersed throughout the world and kind of absorbed into other cultures and aren't even traceable, that uh, they, they still have an opportunity for salvation just the same way that we do. And it's our responsibility to, to help them figure that out and to take that path. Uh, so in conclusion... Uh, in the book of Obadiah, we've seen that the prophets were not limited in their prophecies to just the nation of Israel, that God held the heathen nations accountable for their actions. While it was written primarily to comfort the Israelites in Obadiah's day, there are lessons to be gleaned for us as well. And the message of hope may have had its fulfillment in what we can enjoy ourselves today in the person and work of Jesus. Um, And so lessons from the book of Obadiah. Pride goes before destruction. Pride leads to vanity and a sense of independence from God. Just as Edom took pride in their geographical location, their allies, their wisdom and might, Mount Seir, the, the mountain fortress, and they felt uh, that it was impenetrable. Uh, it was not. But uh, God will punish such arrogance. So are we on guard against pride because pride goes before destruction? Another lesson we learned from this is do not mistreat your brethren. Last week we spent some time going back to the, the beginning of the relationship between uh, Jacob and Esau that would eventually, you know, uh, when they were uh, even struggling in the womb. It's important to note, too, that here the Bible calls, uh, calls two babies struggling in the womb children, not fetuses or something else that's used by the pro-choice movement uh, and, and, uh, and all the mass killing of babies uh, through abortion. God considers the unborn child to be a child uh, that he created. Do not mistreat your brethren. This was Edom's guilt also. Uh, how we treat our brethren affects our relationship with the Lord. Paul says... For if someone sees you, you who have knowledge, dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For though your knowledge, uh, for through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. 
the brother for whose sake Christ died, and so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Uh, but you got to be careful with that one too, because there there are congregations uh, down south I've heard of that uh, that uh, bring in roll in a piano and start playing instrumental music, and and the brethren who oppose that they call them the weaker brethren because they just don't understand, and, and you know, it's uh, the whole thing is just very messy. So uh, be careful with that how you apply that. Um, we hold influence over one another. It is God's desire that we encourage one another to live more holy and reverent lives for Jesus. It is a grave sin to cause the destruction of another brother's faith, causing him to be lost again. And we can do that. Uh, you can so treat a brother as to cause him to fall away. And so we're careful about that, how we deal with our brethren. And then another lesson learned from this is do not rejoice when your enemy falls, like we had just read in the book of Obadiah. Edom did this when Judah was plundered. This sort of gloating is displeasing to God. God does not delight in unrighteousness. And in a time of divine judgment, God provides a means and a place of escape for those who turn to him. Reminds me of 1 Corinthians 10.13, where it says uh, that... uh, there hath no temptation or taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful and will not tempt you above that you're able, but will, with the temptation, provide a way of escape. God always provides a way of escape for temptation. And uh, for our brethren in the first century under Nero, a lot of times that way of escape was their physical death. Right? Um, but that also is a way of escape. All right. And so a couple of things uh, in general about the prophets. We have a few minutes. Until the bell rings, at least anyway. Um, so the prophets were called by God to be his representative and spokesman. They served, in effect, as God's mouth the instrument of God used to deliver his message. Uh, They would receive a message from God and speak the message for God. Uh, And the the example that's always given is in Exodus chapter 4, Moses and Aaron. There's a lot to learn from this example too. Uh, So in Exodus chapter 4, and... uh, And uh, beginning with verse 10, we'll start there, where Moses is trying to get out of this. God's saying, you're going to go and you're going to speak on my behalf. You'll be my prophet. I'll put my word in your mouth. And then and then Moses says here in Exodus 4.13, but he said, oh, my Lord. Now, it's important to note that the sentence began with but. So God just tells him, this is what I expect of you. This is what you're going to do. And then Moses starts with but, which I think translated literally from the Greek means something like, oh, no, this this is not going to be good. Because when God tells you to do something and you start with but, uh, it's it's not a good thing. So Moses says, oh, my Lord, please send the hand of whomever else you may send. <laughs> How often do we respond to God that way? Oh, send someone else, right? Let, let someone else do that. Have them do that. 
so the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? Um, but you know, all the way up in, in the first verse of chapter 4, Moses started with this but business, where then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, The Lord has not appeared to you, right? So uh, uh, Moses is throwing out the but there also. And you can back it up all the way to uh, chapter 3 and verse 11. In verse 10, God has said, Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So there it is. There's the commission. And Moses responds, the very next verse, But Moses said to God. So but, but, but. Right? A little uh, undue opposition there. So you go into 4 and verse 14 where it says, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well, and look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. So it kind of got a relay going on here, right? Uh, because Moses didn't feel like he had the, the eloquence. Um, sometimes I like to say elegance, just to show you that I am not eloquent, right? Uh, but so here you have uh, an excellent example of God commissioning a prophet uh, initially the attempt there to get Moses to do it and then the but 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 and then Aaron ends up doing it but uh, he said you shall be as a mouth to me um, and uh, you shall be as a God to Aaron uh, so that my word gets out there all right so the prophets were both foretellers and foretellers uh, we mentioned this last week I think or maybe two weeks ago where uh, they uh, they prophesied things that would come far in the future, but they were also the preachers of their day, uh, preaching the word and God's expectations to the people of their time. So they had a contemporary message too. First and foremost, they had a, the message for the people of their own time. And they would proclaim the consequences of obedience and disobedience, like we just talked about in the example of Obadiah with the Edomites. Uh, and sometimes they spoke of the future as they were preaching to the people about their immediate situation. So in, in a message that was for the people, uh, that, that had application, immediate application, there was also in the same message, uh, a foretelling of prophecy for something that may have been far in the future. Um, and the, mostly it was emphasized the message repent or face destruction uh, and for us we see that that in uh, in passages that we often refer to like in second Thessalonians chapter 1 so the prophet's message was repent or face destruction and in second Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 7 through 10 it says and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ 
These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our our testimony among you was believed. So we see the same thing in the New Testament. It's applicable. Uh, the, that that message is applicable to us the same way. There there are rewards for obedience, and there are uh, uh, consequences for disobedience and for lack of faith. The prophets offered hope for the future if the people would turn back to God which is evident from the following. Um, and so write these in your notes. Uh, we're not going to read the whole passage from, from all these examples. Uh, and, and, you know, you might think, well, I don't take notes. Well, uh, Acts chapter 17, verse 11 says you do. So the nice thing about notes is uh, I, I've still got my notepads and I'll still write something down occasionally, but uh, I don't have to take notes as often anymore because uh, we have this, live stream and the archives the lessons go in the archive uh, so you can go home sit down at your table put your bible out your note taker uh, make things quiet maybe put on some soft classical music whatever you know whatever the best study and uh, atmosphere is for you and then watch tony's lesson again watch it over again and then do like Acts chapter 17 verse 11 says there, like the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they, they not, they didn't only receive the things that were being said, but they went on to search the scriptures to prove that those things were so. Very important, uh, in our process as Christians, in our learning process. And you know, uh, I've, I've said before that, uh, 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 the, you know, the, the seating in the auditorium of the churches is, uh, is an optional thing, uh, and and if you if you change it, you're going to get some folks upset. I mean, that's natural. We got resistance to change is a very real thing that that you have to deal with throughout your life and your career. Uh, and and uh, when something's changed, you got to keep everybody from quitting. You know, uh, in the workforce. Uh, and I, I dealt with that in the Air Force. All we change something, and a bunch of people would freak out, and then everything would kind of calm down. They say, eh, it's okay. You know, and they get used to it. But uh, uh, this is one of those things: the seating in the church. We had big, big pews that went all the way across here. Now we have chairs that you can move around and rearrange. And, uh, and, uh, personally, I'm more comfortable in these chairs. I don't even use my back cushion anymore from those, <laughs> those hard wooden pews. Uh, but, uh, you know, if, if I were king for a day, there wouldn't be these chairs in here. There'd be student tables or desks and, uh, everybody'd have their note takers and they'd be regular, so whatever. <laughs> So I, I don't say that anymore because I can go home and now and watch the tape and sit down comfortable at my table and and review the things that were said and really think about them, meditate on those things, and more importantly, uh, look up those scriptures and read them uh, so that we know that we're all getting this stuff right. So uh, uh, the message of the prophets for the people were from God. Uh, and Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 10 we see this. And then last week we talked about uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, where no prophecy of Scripture came uh, from any private interpretation, but holy men spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Mike Sherry used to talk about how they'd get the pen in their hand and they'd get ready to write, and the Holy Spirit would just take over. And just, you know, uh, that, 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 that came from there. So, but, but if you look in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 10... 
Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Um, and then we've seen the example with Moses and Aaron, how the word of God was to come through them, uh, how their mouth would quite, quite uh, literally in a spiritual sense be God's mouth as he worked through them. And then you can look at Amos chapter 7 and verse 14 and 15. The prophets also predicted that destruction was coming to God's people because of sin. Destruction was coming to God's people because of sin, as was the case with the Edomites, for the way they treated their brother, uh, the way that they treated their, their brethren, uh, and, uh, uh, and by uh, their uh, revenge that they did when we know that, uh, like we talked about, vengeance belongs to God. And so while God would punish the nation, individuals were accountable only for their own sins. you got to read the whole chapter of Ezekiel 18, um, uh, which has a great application to us today, where we are, uh, where individuals are, are, will be held accountable to God for their own sin. Uh, there in Ezekiel chapter 18, it talks about how the sons will not be held accountable for the sins of their fathers, right? Which I know that some of our denominational friends uh, in talking about original sin and how sin works, that uh, that indeed uh, even babies and young children, small children, are accountable for for the sins of their father and therefore born with sin. So, um, read Ezekiel chapter eighteen. It'll dispel any notion that uh, anyone might have that uh, that the son is accountable for the father's sins. It's not to say that that uh, there aren't consequences of my sin if I raise my son a certain way, but that's a different thing, you see. Um, God used other nations as his instruments to punish. Um, and then, you know, you think about the, the, the exile and the Babylonian captivity. Read Jeremiah chapter 25, where it talks about why all that happened. Uh, and I know there are other examples, Jeremiah 27 and throughout Jeremiah and other places that explain that. But uh, just my opinion, and I'll qualify it as, as that, that I like the explanation given in Jeremiah 25, uh, that that one uh, is the one that I usually will refer to uh, most often. Israel's status as God's people could not save her from destruction. Look at Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 4. Do not trust in these lying words saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. It kind of reminds you of that passage that says, uh, 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 that, that, uh, those who, uh, in that day there will be those who say, Lord, 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 have we not done this and have we not, not done that? Uh, but, uh, ultimately they had not done the will of the Father, you know. Uh, and so it, it kind of reminds you of that too. Same concept here, uh, Israel's status that God's people could not save her. It's kind of like uh, the Christian that gets baptized, and then they're like, well, I'm saved, so I'm good to go. And then they stop studying, 
They stop teaching. They stop applying God's word like we read about in Hebrews 5. Uh, and they, they stop putting God first. And it's kind of like when little kids play chase, they get on base. I'm on base. You can't touch me, right? So the kid, if the kid's on base, then the guy who's it can't touch them and make them it. Is this making any sense to you? Have you played this tag? I think they call it, right? Well, see, sometimes as Christians, we are baptized and, and, and we think about all the excitement and the joy involved in, in that process and that happening. And then uh, after not very long, we forget, uh, what motivated those feelings and we kind of, to stop exerting effort, uh, in the whole thing. But we feel like since we're in the church, you know, by, by attending maybe and by participating in fellowship that we're on base. So we can't be tagged. We're, we, we can't be, we can't suffer, uh, punishment from God for, for not, uh, doing the will of God, like it says there. The prophets urged the people to repent. And they didn't stop there. They urged them to live righteously. Think about the woman that was caught in the very act. And uh, Jesus, the people who surrounded her that were going to stone her, like the guy hadn't done anything wrong, right? The guys, the, the, the leaders, the religious leaders that surrounded her and were going to stone her, uh, Jesus said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. A lot of times we stop there in that lesson. But Jesus went on to say, go and sin no more. So it was uh, through the prophets, God urged the people to repent and then to live righteously. Uh, So the lesson is yours. Thank you for your time.